Welcome back to MERS Monday for more than 10 years, the Michigan political podcast. In this week's Christmas edition of MERS Monday, the team is joined by Crane's politics and policy reporter David Eggert to name MERS Senator of the Year. This will be the final installment of the Legislator of the Year series for 2023. Also, My Song, a candidate for Michigan's 13th Warren-based House District, explains her journey from being born in the Ban Venai refugee camp in Thailand to becoming a Macomb County Commissioner during the COVID-19 pandemic. Additionally, Lance Beninimi of the Michigan Infrastructure and Transportation Association describes how different proposed user fees, like toll roads, could assist the state with road funding. Now, here's MERS podcast host Samantha Schreiber and editor Kyle Malin. Thank you so much, Mark Bayshore, for kicking off today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast, which will be our Christmas Day episode. Merry Christmas to all those who celebrate. Happy ho, ho. holidays. Ho, ho, Kyle. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> I don't know if we've ever had a podcast that actually landed right on Christmas Day. Man. Christmas. I, what what uh, what music did you select here? It's going to be all Christmas music. It better be. It's going to be Sleigh Ride. It's going to be Hot Cocoa Madness. I am excited for today's episode. But of course, we are pre-recording our Senator of the Year, which is the final installation of our Legislator of the Year series, uh, capping it off with my personal beat, the State Senate. Now, we are here with Kyle Malin, the MERS editor, and then Dave Eckerd, who is with Cranes right now, currently. Yes. How long have you been with Cranes, Dave? I've been at Cranes about a year and a half. I feel like it was just a month ago (laughs) when you switched over from AP to Cranes. Yeah, it feels like uh, not long ago at all. Um, But yeah, I've been really happy with the transition. It's um, still a very exciting state to cover politically. So and how much time would you say that you spent in the Senate this year? You know, um, actually more than I maybe would have thought heading into the year. I'm still kind of figuring out how much I need to be in the legislature or not. But it was obviously a very productive session. A lot of things happened and a lot that had a business impact, which is important for our readers. How, how long have you been covering the Capitol now? Off and on, I've, I've, um, I got to Lansing in 2004, so almost 20 years ago now, which is, is crazy, to, crazy to think that. Now, I haven't covered the Capitol the whole time, but I would say at least probably 15, 17 years of that. Yeah. Yeah, I remember you were right, right after me. You came on the scene. Yeah, and, when did you come? Uh, 2001. Yeah, so right behind me, and you've had a couple different beats when you were at the AP. Yeah, I mean, back when the AP was more staffed, I I covered the Senate. I actually like went to the Senate every day, um, and we had a House reporter. It was similar to probably like a Mer- the MERS uh, setup. Um, and then over time, I probably haven't been in the Senate as much, but I always enjoy going over there, and I'm still there pretty regularly. I feel like we are sometimes ungrateful uh, this past year because I know you and me, Dave, we have spent 7 p.m., 8 p.m., these sessions that went into the evening, and it's like, oh, man, it was such a long day. But then I also have to think, wait a second, I have been in the Senate chamber past midnight before. This could be a lot worse. <laughs> what What is the longest you've ever spent in the Senate chamber, Kyle? Well, 
we were around during the 07 shutdown, so we were there all night at all hours. I don't know about the Senate because the senators always found a way to get out of sticking around like all night, all night, unlike the House. Yeah, if I remember correctly, that's a long time ago. The House would sort of have the board open for 24 hours or or whatever yeah. it was, and it, yeah, people were literally sleeping on the floor. I think we just had to get creative with trying to rotate reporters in and out. Yeah, I think that was it. I I seem to remember when they did when they finally got around to doing the income tax increase in 07. I seem to remember John Cherry up at the podium at like one or two in the morning. But I don't remember them doing the all night sessions that the House did. I I don't either. Uh, My memory's pretty bad, but uh, the House is where I remember, especially you see a lot of these photos that still live on kind of an infinite lawmakers sleeping on their desk and um <laughs> live on and <laughs> under their desks <laughs> under their desks sorry not on their desks um and yeah i don't i don't really miss those times <laughs> budget I, shutdowns i think before we dive in i just want one more christmas question because it is our christmas episode kyle what is your favorite christmas day activity well i've always i'm, I'm kind of a family kind of guy so i've always liked going to family gatherings on christmas and doing the white elephant goofy gifts or whatever as far as christmas goes it's probably that but you know now that we have kids you know there's nothing better than having christmas with kids i think you'd agree with that wouldn't you dave yeah i would i would say the same having having kids i mean just still seeing my kids are a little older but just seeing that excitement you know you just kind of you kind of live through that a little bit um so I, I am one of the kids of my family. So I'm <laughs> no kids, but I am the kid. I am a 25-year-old teenager, I like to say. So I am just kind of excited to spend time with my family. We always take a giant nap after exchanging presents in the morning and eating breakfast. So that that's the Schreiber family. We're a couple of sloths. Do you like wake up at six in the morning? Five in the morning? Yeah, my little brother, he will wake us up. Even now, he is 21 years old, and I'm expecting him to wake me up at 5 a.m. Like, <laughs> let's go. Time to get started. Uh, and and also, my um my Nana Rhonda Reek, who is unfortunately not with us anymore, but she had these handmade stockings that she had for us. And no matter how old we got, she always said that the stocking st- stuffers were specifically from Santa Claus. So Oh, they were? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wait. Yes. Santa. Of course they were. Yeah, of course they were. Of course they were. <laughs> uh, so that's our senator of the year. It's Santa Claus. But <laughs> diving into it, I want, I guess I could just get started as we talk about our senator of the year. Uh, our publisher, the boss, John Rurank, and our house reporter, Danielle James, are out of town. So she, they will be submitting their nominations to us that we will play for you all. But as Merz's state Senate reporter, it was really difficult for me to choose who I wanted to nominate. I wanted to choose someone who worked on intricate packages and issues that were defining moments in 2023, while also not being afraid to separate themselves from the pack amid a historical partisan party change in the chamber. I am nominating Senator Mary Cavanaugh, a Redford Township Democrat, who made headlines this year when she fought for her Senate package 
language, modifying Michigan's 2019 auto insurance reform to provide higher insurer-covered reimbursements for the long-term care of catastrophic accident survivors, establishing a proposed system undoing the 45% reduction reduction in reimbursements, and installing a new procedure where reimbursements would be influenced by changing costs and medical commodities. Uh, this is something that has been talked about you obviously see a catastrophic car accident survivors on around the capital just kind of a big issue around lansing and although the package did not make it past the finish line this year the senator fought for it to survive and get passed on the senate floor even after the governor's own department director anita fox of insurance and financial services stated her opposition to the package the day before uh, senator kavanaugh was also a bill sponsor on the reproductive health act package which was signed by the governor governor specifically introducing a bill to lift the prohibition on higher education institutions parenting student services offices or making referrals to abortion services also she was the chair of the appropriations subcommittee overseeing the budget for the michigan department of labor and economic opportunity which immediately kind of caught eyes when it surfaced for the fiscal year 2024 in terms of just the numerous grant programs and the pre selected recipients of that money and also as people are gearing up for another historical year in 2024 another historical election year which the secretary of state jocelyn benson herself predicts to be a grand finale uh, senator kavanaugh introduced now signed legislation providing a presidential candidate with up to 48 hours after the board of state canvassers certify an election to file a complaint for mandamus with the michigan supreme court if they believe there's an error in the results uh, this follows numerous challenges to the november 2020 election results when former president donald trump argued that corruption and wrongdoing at the polls was the reason president joe biden won and i could probably talk about the leo budget for several hours but we don't have that time <laughs> you know that was a great uh, nomination though sam there was so much activity in the senate mary kavanaugh had eight public acts which is uh right in the mix of uh senators who had a lot of uh, public acts but you know just taking a look at it jeremy moss had 10 erica geis had nine stephanie chang had nine jeff Irwin had nine sam singh had nine uh kevin Ortel had eight just a very, very um, uh, productive state Senate. Uh, you really can't go wrong with really anybody, to be honest. But uh, Mary Kavanaugh certainly took that very difficult issue that uh, everybody recognizes is out there, but nobody really wants to tackle it because nobody wants to be accused of raising insurance rates again. Yeah, I, I wonder what that must have felt like to get the letter from Anita Fox expressing the opposition from the department and with Anita Fox ultimately being linked to the governor and how the governor feels no one wants to send something during a Democratic trifecta that the governor could potentially veto. But yet you saw the senator really take a risk on an issue that she believes in. And I think that that kind of came at a time where a lot of people just kind of viewed Democratic trifecta. Everyone is in lockstep with each other. But this was kind of an issue where you see both Democratic support, Republican support, and at the same time, Republican opposition and some Democratic opposition. Well, we'll see what they're in. They're going to end up working out in the House. That's really where I think we're going to find whatever the final compromise is, because they are going to need the governor's support in order to obviously get it enacted into law.
Okay, Dave, our guest media nominator, who would you like to nominate to be Senator of the Year? I would like to nominate Winnie Brinks, the Senate Majority Leader. You know, I think there was a lot of attention on her entering the year, given Democrats are not control of the chamber in 40 years. Also, she's the first ever female leader of a majority caucus in the legislature. You know, I think I think early on they hit the ground running with, you know, I, what I view is probably not something they really wanted to do, the presidential primary bill and starting start moving the date up. But I think it kind of sent a message a little bit to Republicans, you know, hey, we're, we're not afraid to do, you know, maybe some partisan things here right off the get go. And, you know, I think after after that, you just look at the list of everything that was done, as, as Kyle mentioned this year, you know, she kept the caucus pretty unified. It, it seemed like and they got a lot done early. And that, I mean, the, the list um, don't need to go through all of it, but just all the tax changes, the right to work law, prevailing wage, abortion, guns, education, energy, codifying Obamacare, a lot of voting changes, implementing all these uh, proposals. Um, you know, you, you need a strong leader at the top to kind of keep people unified. Also, what Kyle said, just looking at, and I would had done the same thing, just looking at who sponsored a lot of these bills, it, it's, it's pretty evenly divided among a handful. I mean, all these caucus members had to do a lot of work. Um, and, and it seems like, the, um, you know, Senator Brinks did a, a nice job of kind of spreading spreading things around and um, you know maybe she's not as she's not necessarily coming to the press table every day and and um, you know talking to reporters a whole lot but she seems to to really emphasize giving members you know kind of their day in the sun when when you know a big bill passes out of the chamber Kyle Dave my question for you all is people that have been covering the state senate since the 2000s how do you think Winnie Brinks does in comparison to other Senate majority leaders? You know what I really stood out to me is that as a leader, she took an issue and really made it a centerpiece and made sure that it was something that got highlighted and pushed through the chamber. I'm thinking of the Drug Affordability Board. This is a new concept for Michigan anyway, relatively new. I know she introduced it last year, but in general, this is not something that we've been kicking around for sessions after sessions. And um, uh, she took the idea and uh, got it pushed through the Senate. And now it's in the House where there's, I'm sure it's going to be negotiated on and whatever. But I was really impressed how she took a subject that the governor particularly had some interest in and uh, led that through the chamber. Uh, so that's that's one thing I think that's different. Uh, I think Dave made a good point, too, is that she is not the most um, vocal and visual leader, um, that her leading is behind the scenes. And sometimes you can find that to be the most effective when you see the rest of the team around her being as successful as they were. Yeah, and obviously with the Prescription Drug Affordability Board legislation, that wasn't something that her herself could introduce in her capacity as the leader. Uh, but she passed it on to other lawmakers who were able to speak on it and be engaged in that policy making. And I think another thing that is interesting to point out is that it kind of felt that when the legislature did adjourn early for this year and it was that final day of regular bill voting passing session she kind of seemed like she did not want to adjourn, uh, adjourn early that didn't seem like the ideal plan i think she's someone that genuinely wants to be in lansing and genuinely wants to be working on policy yeah for sure i, I think 
you know, they were there all summer kind of working on energy packages. I think she likes to kind of dig into the policy and, and, um, you know, as Kyle said, I, I think that's important, like that drug affordability board, just it was important. And also what you mentioned earlier with auto no fault, just to get some of these things to the house and put some pressure on them. And I realize there's, you know, now, um, a stalemate for a few months, but, um, I think it was important to kind of maybe get some of those things over to the other chamber. So now we're going to move on to listen to the pre-recorded remarks that were sent to us by Danielle James, our house reporter, and right after her, John Rurink, the boss, our publisher. Thank you, Sam. And, you know, as someone who doesn't frequently cover the Senate, this one was a little bit tougher. There are so many senators whose names float over to the House, but thanks to some assistance from my counterpart, you know, Sam, I was able to settle settle on nominating Senator Stephanie Chang from the 3rd Senate District. I nominated Chang, a former two-term House member and now senator, because of the sheer amount of important packages that she's had a hand in. Chang has sponsored 33 bills, and she has nine public acts. Those PAs begin with designating January 30th of each year as Fred Korematsu Day and end with her role in a bill prohibiting domestic violence offenders from possessing firearms for eight years. In the middle, Chang has sponsored legislation repealing outdated abortion laws, asbestos abatement reform, driver's licenses for all legislation, bills allowing campaign finance funds to pay for childcare expenses, collective bargaining updates for teachers, limited English proficiency language access plans within state departments, and a bill package creating a water affordability rate program. So, you know, pretty much everywhere on the policy spectrum. One bill that really stuck out to me was Senate Bill 56, which lifts Michigan's unenforced ban on cohabitation between an unmarried man and woman and did make it across the finish line. Murs also found that Chang chaired the Senate's most productive committee. Of the 124 non-budget-related Senate bills signed by the governor, which does not include legislation that was discharged from committee, more than 32% of those bills signed began in her Senate Civil Rights, Judiciary, and Public Safety Committee. In addition to her chair position, Chang serves on the Education, Elections, and Ethics, Energy and Environment, Housing and Human Services, and Transportation and Infrastructure Committees. She is also the Senate Democratic Policy and Steering Chair, and for a point of historical reference, she is the first Asian American woman elected to the Michigan legislature. And it's for that, you know, very long list of reasons that I decided to nominate her. For Senate Member of the Year this year, uh, I'm putting into nomination the name of Senate Appropriations Committee Chair uh, Sarah Anthony. As I mentioned during my nomination of our uh, House Member of the Year, where I nominated House Appropriations Committee Chair Whitwer, uh, this year, as a 50-year Lansing resident, it seemed like the capital city actually benefited from the annual legislative appropriation process. Uh, the list, which uh, MERS enumerated in our June 29th Capital Capsule Edition, is a long one, with the capital city alone getting $130 million in special projects. Just a few to mention, uh, $6.2 million to, to fix up the Moores River Park Pool, $6 million for the Lansing Prevention and Treatment Services, $5 million to spruce up the Lansing Center, and many, many more special projects. But with Senator Anthony, just as was the case with Whitwer, there was a level of activity beyond what would just come with being Appropriations Committee Chair. She was part of two major legislative packages this year. Uh, her Senate Bill 474 was part of the package of bills that repealed old laws that limited access to abortion following voter action in 2022 uh, that enshrined the right to abortion in our state's constitution. Uh, separately, her Senate Bill 209 uh, that was also signed into law was part of the package that banned individuals under the age of 18 from becoming legally married, the so-called uh, child bride package. So for her contribution to her community uh, as Appropriations Chair, 
for her legislative uh, activity. Uh, I am nominating uh, Senator Sarah Anthony. You know, those are both uh, great nominations. Uh, you know, for uh, Senator Chang, uh, she obviously had an extremely busy committee. I think uh, your research found her committee to be the busiest of all of the committees in the state Senate and probably the legislature, too. You know, the House has a judiciary and a criminal justice committee, and in the Senate, it's just one. So she took care of of all that. Uh, But uh, really what struck me is that we're finally seeing some movement on the water affordability issue, which is something Senator Chang brought up uh, many times. And uh, now that the Democrats are in majority, she's actually starting to to see that move and uh, starting to get some type of movement on it. Obviously nothing yet, but I was really uh, was really impressed to see uh, the fruits of her labor on that finally come to come out. And then uh, for Senator Anthony, um, I, what really struck me is the different issues that she wanted to tackle outside of running a smooth budget process, uh, whether it had to do with hair discrimination or child brides. Those are issues you don't typically see an appropriations committee chair lead with, um, but she found the time and made it a very big priority for her and um, saw both of those bills Uh, signed into law so effective on both fronts she was also the lead senate negotiator on the reproductive health act legislation too with senator anthony she is someone and i think we have obviously nominated many senate appropriations chairs to be the senator of the year because of these intricate budgets being part of that negotiation being part of getting information out on the budget once it's completed and while senator anthony did that she didn't necessarily sit in the appropriations box she got into other issues and kind of allowed herself to be stretched kind of across these numerous topics and again with senator chang again a very productive committee uh i think it was as of last week uh the previous week the week before the week before christmas her committee saw the initial development testimony and adoption of 40 public acts 40 that's a lot it's a lot so so Again, I think those are both great nominations. But last but not least, I want to hear from you, Kyle. Who are you choosing? Well, my nomination is going to go towards Senate Majority Floor Leader Sam Singh from East Lansing. Now, remember, these awards were created to recognize those legislators who are the most effective and impactful in the preceding year while also maintaining a high level of activity. And last week, I mentioned that Um, I've shown partiality to legislators uh, who tackle big, complex jobs and see them through to completion, and that's what happened this year with the energy reform legislation. Singh and his fellow lawmakers went to the Senate Energy and Environment Committee before summer recess, laid out what they wanted to do, create a 100% clean energy standard by 2035, and he worked with his fellow Senate Democratic colleagues over the summer with the various stakeholders, and there are many, to find common ground. And he had to work with the incumbent utility companies who were critical in this because, um, you know, obviously they have to implement this policy, uh, but they were in a little bit of a tricky situation. Consumers and DTE were both under fire for much of the year uh, from customers who have lost patience with the frequent power outages during a seemingly routine storm. And so they were under a little bit of heat. And also, both of them have a transition to clean energy plan already out there. So they had to reach consensus with power companies in a way to keep future energy costs from completely 
uh, going out of control by forcing these energy co- companies to do something sooner that they were already planning on doing. So he was kind of walking this tightrope here. So all the while, in order to make clean energy work, the state needs more solar and wind capacity. And the stakeholders understood that going community by community and going to war with every you know township board that you would need to go to war with uh, to get a new wind turbine or a large solar farm was going to be costly, time-consuming, and quite frankly, a pain. So Singh led the Democrats locked them together and created this statewide permitting fallback system that's activated if the local government can't come to an agreement. And, you know, it does give Republicans a campaign issue in these rural areas, and it will put some House members in competitive districts at risk. But I think Singh's work gave these vulnerable members some arguments they can take back to their district um, and, and, you know, defend themselves. So, you know, he was obviously key in leading on this controversial complex plan that gave environmentalists their first major legislative public policy win since the Granholm administration. Also, I would say that uh, Singh also led this small little work group that ended up crafting the final version of the Proposal 1 financial disclosure bills that got signed into law. And whether you like them or not, he was effective in finding something that leadership could agree on. So, you know, I you know, you got to give him credit for that. Outside of being the Senate Majority Floor Leader, which is a very busy and active job, he had nine bills become public acts, which includes various other subjects like dental screening for kids, um, agriculture, and a bunch of other subjects. So for all that, I'm going to nominate Senator Sam Singh. I think that's a good nomination. I had this conversation once with someone who is part of the environmentalist advocacy kind of brigade of organizations and I and this was during the time where there was a bit of eye rolling as the house was taking up the aggregate legislation which obviously got stuck in committee and I asked them oh you know do you feel that the senate do you kind of prefer the senate or the house when it comes to the environmental policy in which you're demanding and advocating for and the individual i spoke to said oh well the senate has senator singh and that he is someone that kind of entered that chamber after briefly being away from the legislature and was just ultimately ready to go on these environmental policy issues and didn't really spend that much time waiting so i think that's something to be considered and also not only did he just work on this very big complicated energy package that we're still going to be talking about for quite literally years Mm. until 2024 2040 and afterward Uh, he also introduced things like dealing with mishta's bond program so that if you are a housing developer you could utilize some bonds to build assisted living facilities and facilities that are centered for older residents as our population becomes older so he deals with like probably the most eclectic range of issues that i've had to report on in a hot second yeah i mean i i totally agree with both of you i, th- I think um you know, another thing that's interesting about the energy package is Senator Singh marshaled that through in probably record time for an energy package. I think yeah, that's a good pre- point. I think the previous two energy packages are very late in the second year of a two-year term. Um, you know, obviously there's criticism that it was by, you know, business community and others that it was rushed. But to be able to kind of get everybody on board with this package in that amount of time, it's especially after everything that happened in the first half of the year is, is impressive. 
Okay, well now we're going to turn on our suspense music and figure out who will be Senator of the Year. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Wait, should the suspense music be Christmas music, Kyle? Oh, it should be. So we will be selecting for our Senator of the Year, the final of our Legislator of the Year series. Senator of the Year will go to Senator Sam Singh, a East Lansing Democrat. You know, uh, this one really came down to how extensive this energy package was. And, and Dave, I had forgotten, but the last two energy packages were pretty much the capstone of, of something that had been worked on for an entire legislative term. Like it, it, it came at the end of something they'd been working on for two years. And they, they polished this off in four or five months. Yeah. I mean, especially given the fact that the first half of the year was so busy, it sounds like they worked on it heavily over the summer and were, were able to, you know, get it through, which I think, you know, at, at one point there were probably some questions, um, you know, was this thing going to get across the finish line? And, um, you know, Sam Singh definitely was very instrumental in helping helping get there. I also would like to point, and this is kind of a lighter note, but being the state senator for East Lansing, when the legislation was getting passed in the Senate to allow sporting college sporting arenas to sell alcohol, Senator Singh was one of two no votes. And I texted him. I was like, oh, can you tell me why you voted no? And he got up and talked to us. And he's like, yeah, there's people in the East Lansing community, you know, just neighborhood groups that I have to represent that don't like this policy and then i was like well are you yourself going to order a drink at the msu game and he goes yeah i mean of course <laughs> he's got to be honest about it yeah so i mean i i appreciate it that you are honest about having to appropriate appropriately represent the groups that voted you and your constituents uh but you're also not going to hide that you may be ordering an alcoholic refreshment at an msu game so with that being said, Senator Sam Singh, our Senator of the Year. Joining us now for the MERS Monday podcast is my Sung. She is a Macomb County Commissioner who first moved to Michigan to study at the College of Creative Studies in Detroit. And she is also running in the Democratic primary to be the state representative out of Warren. And she was also endorsed by Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Uh, hello, Mai. How are you doing today? Hi, I'm good. Thanks for having me today. So I kind of want to start from the very beginning of who exactly are you and why do you want to run for state rep in Warren? Sure. So my father was born and raised in Laos. And when he was 17, he was recruited by the USCIA to fight alongside American soldiers during the Vietnam War. So he was a part of the Hmong tribe and they happened to live on the trail where weapons were being smuggled into Vietnam. So my father fought alongside American soldiers, and in 1975, when the U.S. pulled out of Laos, anyone that was Hmong was persecuted. So my father and my mother had to flee Laos, and they hid in the jungles for four years because they didn't want to leave their country. But when it was clear that it wasn't going to be safe for them to continue living there, they fled to Thailand, literally swam across the Mekong River, into neighboring Thailand, and the UN had set up refugee camps there 
for the influx of Hmong refugees that were fleeing out of Laos. And they lived there for seven years. And in 1984, I was born in the Ban Vinai refugee camp. And when I was three years old in 1987, we were accepted into the U.S. So we came uh, here, and I grew up in Akron, Ohio. And after high school in 2003, I was accepted to the College for Creative Studies. I wanted to study art and design. So I moved to Warren and lived with my sister and studied there for four years. I took the smart bus from Warren to Detroit every day. I lived there on campus for a year. And after I graduated, I worked at an advertising agency and met my husband uh, shortly after. And we decided to start our family in Warren. We wanted to stay there. It was It's a great community, great schools. We have family there. And since then, I've lived there for over 20, 20 years now and have four children together. Uh, they are five, seven, nine, and 11 years old, so still very young. But in 2020, I felt like I was finally at a point in my life where I could give back to the community that had given me so much. And I wanted my children to look up at our leaders and see someone that looked like them. So ran, I ran for a county commission during the pandemic, which was really difficult to do because you know we, I had a business that was shut down and we weren't able to fundraise or organize or campaign in a traditional sense. And so uh, that was a very uh, a huge challenge, but we were able to o- overcome that and the residents of Warren have continued to support me and, and elect me, and I got reelected last year, so I'm currently serving my second term. In this in this House seat, you are running to succeed Lori Stone, who was the state rep who then ran for Warren City Mayor and won the election. A special election was called. The governor had a fairly tight timeline in which she announced the special election and when you had to file to be the candidate. So when did you start seriously thinking and putting together a campaign for this seat? So earlier this year, I was actually asked to run for Warren City Clerk, and I did run alongside Mayor Stone for the past seven to eight months. We ran a really really close, coordinated campaign, and I had been looking forward to working with her at City Hall, championing a lot of the uh, election laws that have recently passed in the legislature. So I remember that night, the election night in November when we found out the results, Lori had won and I wasn't successful in the clerk's race. She turned to me and she said, you got, you got to run for my seat. You know, I want you to be my state rep. There's no one else that I could think of that would be able to fill this seat. And so, you know, having her encouragement, having her support, that helped me to, to make that decision. And, and we had campaign together we you know my supporters volunteers my team they were ready to um, stand behind me and continue to campaign and so we have built a really um, good campaign infrastructure and given that I have been on the county commission for the past three years now that has really set us up for this special election you know you were running against an incumbent uh, when you were running for clerk correct whereas Lori Stone was running in an open seat, essentially. Yes, I believe it is much harder to run against an incumbent. And I am extremely happy that Lori is now my mayor. I look forward to working alongside her. 
in the state house as our next state re- state representative and i'm also really grateful that the residents of warren and, and the district have continued to ask me to run you've mentioned that you are that your nationality you're among uh, talk to our listeners about the challenges that you've faced on the campaign trail uh, because of that of uh, your ethnicity so you know during the pandemic it was very challenging to go door knocking and not know how people were going to react given some of the discrimination that came out of the pandemic but Warren has been the residents of Warren have been extremely supportive and and welcoming and so I haven't experienced much of that on the campaign trail. I think people recognize me instantly because I do, you know, have a very unique name and, um, you know, don't look like the typical uh, person that you might um, think of when you when you think of electeds. And so I'm really happy to be able to be that person that can bring a diverse and unique perspective at any level of government that, you know, I'll, I'll be serving in. And as a mom with four children and as a small business owner, these are the things that I really focus on on my campaign that are, I believe, are relatable to working families. And so at the end of the day, I mean, it certainly doesn't matter what I look like because we all want the same thing. We want to have good schools for our kids and, and live in safe communities. So that's usually what I focus on. So it's a Saturday morning and you miraculously have some time off to go hang out in your community and spend time with your family. Uh, What are the top things that you want to do in Warren? So we definitely, you know, want to make sure that we keep young families in, in Warren, in the district, and having them be able to do things in the district as opposed to, you know, leaving the district, I think will be key. And that's something that I definitely want to um, to contribute to. Who are some of the people who have helped you along the way here? Macomb County Commission campaign, the clerk campaign, and now the state house campaign. We mentioned Governor Whitmer is supporting you. Um, who are some other folks who have been helping you along the way and encouraging you? Well, I'm so honored and proud to have the endorsement of the governor. I've also worked really well with my colleagues on the Board of Commissioners. Uh, we work very in a much bipartisan fashion. And so I look forward to bringing that experience to the state capitol. I also have received the endorsement of Councilman Scott Benson, who represents Council District 3 in Detroit, and it overlaps with the 13th House District. So I look forward to working with him to make sure that we bring back resources to the district. Mm-hmm. What type of bills do you want to introduce if you were to win this seat? You know, I'm really focused on campaigning right now and making sure that I take care of uh, the district. And I'm going to, to go to go to Lansing to, to listen and to learn and to see where I can contribute to the progress that has been made uh, in the Democratic majority. But you do have top issues. What would you say are your top issues as a candidate or even as just a person, your top philosophies? Taking care of families, making sure we lift the income of all families and that we uh, focus on small businesses as a small business owner. Entrepreneurship is very important to me and we, we need to make sure that we provide resources for small business owners 
and uh, capital resources so that they can um, succeed. Can you tell us a little bit more about what your business was before it had to close due to the pandemic? Sure. So I started to design women's clothing inspired by traditional ethnic Hmong wear. So with the modern uh, twist and modern fabrics. So I opened up a shop in 2019, August 2019. Actually was starting out in our home, in our house in Warren, and we quickly outgrew that. We were shipping and, and printing and sewing, and so we decided to move uh, to a different location nearby and opened up our shop, and re- it was uh, you know, very well received. And then the pandemic hit in, in March of 2020, and we had to shut down because of the executive order and to, to keep everyone safe. And so we tried to move everything online. And so I have had to learn how to build a business from the ground up and to to manage during a pandemic. And I think a lot of businesses and business owners have gone through the same thing that, that I have. And I want to make sure that I can be a voice for them um, in Lansing and making sure that we advocate for the resources that they need to to continue to, to flourish. You had mentioned your parents prior. Are they still with us? Unfortunately, my father passed away about eight years ago of cancer, and my mother, um, she got to see me get sworn in in December of 2020, and then she had um, caught COVID and she had passed away. So I had to um, watch her in the hospital, you know, on a monitor, take her last breath and that was that was very very hard but I know they're always with me and they've instilled in me hard work and ethics and serving the people that need help the most and that's what I'm going to continue to do. What what did you pull away then? I mean from that that experience in COVID that impacting you so personally what what did what did you bring come out of COVID thinking and and it, did it change your perspective at all on on life? Well, you know, losing both of my parents tells me that our life is very short and we have to do everything that we can to make an impact and to make a difference. And so that's why I'm working so hard because I, I know how precious life is. Um, in particular, during the pandemic, when my store was shut down, I actually brought my sewing machine and all my fabric back home and I started sewing face masks because there was a great need in the community. If you can remember back, you know, three years ago, it was really hard to find any PPE. Mm. And so I started, so I was like, I know how to sew, so let me start making these face masks. And so I was making masks and I was delivering them to seniors. And word got out and they were calling me saying, you know, Mai, can you drop off a mask for me? I need to go to my doctor's appointment and I, I don't have any and I'm afraid to go out and so I would put a mask in a bag and you know hang it on their door and so now when I go door knocking these same um, seniors remember me and they said you know I will always remember you because you brought me a mask when I needed it most like you kept us safe and so you know taking care of our seniors is very you know uh, dear to me as someone that has lost my parents I want to make sure that we are able to take care of our community so that they live long and and healthy because, you know, I lost my parents too soon. So, you know, it was a very devastating time, but we, we came out of it and we are, you know, resilient people. 
and we will continue to to adapt uh, where we need to, and we have to take care of each other. As elected officials, as county commissioner, I've made sure that we address the needs that that we need to in the community. Food insecurity is very real in the district, and with the rising prices at the grocery stores and inflation, our uh, families are, are struggling to put food on the table. So wherever we can uh, bring back resources to the district, that's what I like to do. And when your parents got to Michigan, they couldn't speak, well, not Michigan, but Ohio. Yes. They couldn't speak English, correct? Yeah, so my, my mother didn't have a, I mean, my, both of my parents didn't have a formal education. My father did get his GED, but my, my mother had the, the level of a kindergartner. Um, I believe, you know, she spoke very little English and they, um, you know, really struggled. My, my father made $6 an hour and my mother would sew um, to make ends meet. And that's, you know, how I learned how to sew was helping her. So we never had anything handed to us. And, and I say, and I tell people that I came to this country and, and my family came to this country with nothing but the clothes on our backs. So we really struggled and I'm really fortunate to have had so many opportunities being the first in my family to have a full public school education. I was three years old when I came here, so about the same age as my youngest daughter now, who's in preschool, and I started preschool, and I was able to graduate high school and, and go to college, and, and I think that's what all families want, is and parents, is we want our children to to be better than us, and so whatever I can do to make sure that we take care of our kids, like that's something that I you know, we'll continue to fight for. Can you tell us more about that experience of, oh, so, well, you are a child having your own first time ever experiences. You also had to be your parents' interpreter. Uh, What was that like? And how has that kind of shaped you and your views right now? So we have a lot of families that still need a lot of support. And so I think that, uh, you know, being able to come here and have an education, that really helps me to be a contrib- contributor to society. And so we have to continue to support those who need have language barriers or difficulty accessing uh, services that we need to make sure we support everyone and, and that we are welcoming and making sure that no one falls through the cracks. And speaking of that, one of the issues on the national front is immigration, and President Biden is getting criticized pretty heavily about the border on the southern end of the country and and the flood of folks who are coming through. What's your viewpoint on that and and the immigration, and and what do you say when you're asked about it? I am a, a refugee, and my parents were immigrants, and we were immigrants to this country. And I think there may be a perception that you know, people come here that they shouldn't, but I think we have to be understanding and open to the fact that, you know, people are, we're all human at the end of the day, and we all want the same for our family and our, our kids, and immigrants become business owners, so we have a huge population of immigrants who are known to become small business owners and, and contributors to our economy. But I'm really focused on the uh, issues in the district 
and, and making sure that I uh, can take care of the people that I am serving and being inclusive with my campaign. So that's something that I will continue to champion. And what would you say are the most alarming districts, um, alarming issues in your district right now? Well, food insecurity uh, is one, you know, but making sure that we have good paying jobs for families so that they can make a living and investing in, in our schools and our kids. And why do you think that Macomb, well, not just Macomb County, but Warren specifically, why do you feel that it's not getting those resources? Why or do you feel that you live in a municipality that is overlooked in Lansing? Uh, what, what is kind of your impression of why those needs are still so significant among your neighbors? So I don't think there's one thing in particular. You know, we have to continue to uh, in, invest in, in all communities. And as a county commissioner, having gone through three budget cycles i understand that you know we've got one pie and everyone want wants or needs a piece of that pie and we have to be very strategic about how we allocate resources because those resources are very limited and so we have to look at you know where the greatest needs are and try to address those warren is a, a great place to live and it, it is a growing a diverse community and we just have to continue to to invest there so that you know our population will continue to grow and that people will want to come in and move into the district but I would also say, you know, the 13th House District also includes a portion of Detroit. And so there might be a perception that there's a divide there. But I think working together that we are stronger when, when, than when we are divided. And so I look forward to working with the leaders in the Detroit area and the constituents there and, and making sure that their needs and their voice is included in that process, too. My song, thank you so much for joining us on the MERS Monday podcast and telling us a little bit more about who you are, about your family, and why you are running in this house district. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely weather for a sleigh ride together with you. Outside this snow is falling and friends are calling you. Come on, it's Joining us now on the MERS Monday podcast is Lance Benonimi, the Vice President of Government Affairs for the Michigan Infrastructure and Transportation Association. Did I do the name correct? You nailed it. <laughs> now, I know that you gave me some funny tales, but what is the word, like probably one of the craziest ways someone has mispronounced your name? You know, I think it's probably Benomini is probably the 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 most common pronunciation, but people have used a lot of different variations um, that I probably shouldn't repeat. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously this is kind of that period where we are looking back at what 2023 meant for various industries while also looking into 2024 and 2024 priorities. Could you tell us a little bit more about what 2023 has meant for your organization and what you view as some of the biggest obstacles and biggest successes? Yeah, so um, we, our, our biggest probably objective for 2023 was to get some real facts 
about what the need is for road funding uh, in our state. There was a lot of investment through the governor's uh, bonding proposal through the IIJA, the uh, Infrastructure Investments and Jobs Act that Congress passed. And so a lot of people are seeing a lot of orange barrels, but we knew at MIDA that that did not solve our problem. These are short-term fixes. While they are big investments, they are not long-term sustainable solutions that we desperately need. Um, and we get to about 2026 and 27, and there's a huge revenue cliff. So our, our first goal was really to find out what is that need. Um, and then we spent the second half of the, uh, of the year really focusing on the Population Growth Council, uh, where my executive, our executive vice president, Rob Coppersmith, was a part of that. So obviously there's this ongoing conversation about there just not being enough money for roads, especially with where our roads and our infrastructure is at right now. What do you view as the most accessible ways to collect funding in a way that doesn't blow up people's cost of living in Michigan? Yeah, so it's a very significant funding gap that we have in our road funding. We need $3.9 billion more annually to get our roads in 90% good and fair conditioned. And so it, it will take some increases in user fees. Now, you we typically fund our infrastructure across the country through user fees. That's a gas tax, registration fees, or toll roads. And we don't have any toll roads in Michigan. But So these aren't new concepts, but they, they will cost some. Now, there are cost-saving measures as well. Uh, Michiganders are spending thousands of dollars in unnecessary repairs to their vehicles, unnecessary uh, stoppage, and, and, and just sitting and idling in traffic. Do you think we'll ever see the Michigan toll road in our lifetime? I think it's a viable option out there. If you look at surrounding states, every state in the Midwest has toll roads. And so we think it's a viable option. We think that you can raise pretty, you can raise a billion dollars pretty easily uh, by a couple toll situations that we've, through the feasibility study that we saw that came out a couple years ago. And the toll roads of today are not like the toll roads of 20 years ago where you got lines of cars backing up and you got to dig into your pocket to find a quarter and to throw it in the basket and maybe it makes the basket and maybe it pops out and you got to pull out of your car. You're just zipping through these things right now. Yeah, you know, they're actually pretty slick. And um, federal requirements actually mandate that there are no more collectors of tolls. Um, so they have to be automated. Um, and, you know, they, they go ba- based off the registration of a vehicle. I think we've all driven through Illinois or Pennsylvania where they're collecting your toll uh, without you barely even knowing it and then getting a bill in the mail. Yeah. And as far as Michigan's ability to do toll roads, I remember having a conversation with Kirk Steidel when he was MDOT director. He insisted that we couldn't do toll roads because we would risk federal funding, that the federal government paid for our interstate. And if we started collecting money from toll roads, we would have to give that money to the federal government. What's changed? So that's an old argument that was true at one point. The feds were restricting or prohibiting tolling any roads that you used any federal dollars to. Those have been lifted, uh, and 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 you can there are. That's why we had that feasibility study to really showcase that you can toll some roads in Michigan, and it can be a good way to collect user fees. It's one of the one of the best, most equitable way of collecting a user fee. You can capture out-of-state drivers. Um, you you get to the amount of miles that you're driving that toll. Um, so it is a really good user fee solution are you saying i'm old i was thinking about the idea of needing cash for a toll that freaks me out i have two dollars in my purse right now don't tell anyone but it kind of stresses me out i never carry cash on me because 
it will fall out it will fly out and you oh, just yeah. can't count on me with cash I, I don't know if anybody does anymore <laughs> okay i asked if we'll ever see it in our lifetime he said it's definitely a possibility next year you do you imagine the legislature for continuing that toll road conversation or do you think that might be untouched during an election year well we're hopeful that there's a broader conversation about our funding gap and our roads and bridges um you know population growth council did come out with a 3.9 billion dollar gap um and that only gets worse the longer we wait uh, and the less we do Uh, and we also know that for every dollar you spend in a good and fair conditioned road you can save fourteen dollars in a poor conditioned road and why is that important so right now we currently sit about sixty seven percent of good and fair conditioned roads uh, in the state Um, by 2030 that number drops to 45 percent good and fair conditioned roads that's just going to create this problem to be even larger Uh, and we're going to need more money i just feel like the way that the public views transportation issues i imagine it must be so interesting because sometimes i wonder that you can list infrastructure in a michigan survey as your top or second biggest concern but then once you see those orange construction barrels once you hit construction traffic then you don't want to see any projects or any road spending you're like okay can i just get to work i don't care i'll risk it Mm -hmm. yeah and again we're seeing so much work going on these past few summers um, thankfully from the governor's bonding proposal that came out and the iija but it's because we've underinvested for decades in our state we're trying to play catch up and it's it's a losing battle at times if we don't find long-term solutions but how do you get that to resonate with people in terms of public opinion Well, you know, the roads speak for themselves. And so we really think that, you know, in terms of public opinion, we the problem is is obvious. Uh, And I think you'd be hard pressed to find many people in Michigan who don't think that we need to invest more in our infrastructure. And so I, you know, on top of that, we have as an industry and we think as our coalition, which is very broad across industries in Michigan, we have a, a, an opportunity to educate the public on that these are short-term investments and that we aren't we aren't equi- we have inequity in our user fees as well. You um, mentioned the Population Council just a minute ago. Were you frustrated that they didn't include a funding mechanism in that? Yeah, we were pushing for uh, more solutions in that. Uh, we were hopeful that they would, but we were very excited about um, really finding that they agreed that we have a $3.9 billion funding gap. Um, and, and, and as I mentioned earlier, we aren't talking about new solutions right now. Um, while uh, we're talking about user fees, while a, while a vehicle miles traveled concept is, on, is something that they also recommend or looking for alternative ways, it's not really a new issue. It's still a, we're paying for the roads that you're driving on. Another thing that was kind of talked about from the council was more accessibility and opportunities for public transportation. When you kind of think about that conversation, one thing that I heard circulating around when the governor was beginning this council was, oh, will Michigan ever be a place of vibrant high-speed rail? Did we miss the train on that? Will we ever see those opportunities for transit that other states have? You know, I really think the public transit conversation really uh, needs a broader study and, and view on it. And those you have so many unique variations in Michigan between count, townships and cities um, and so many different jurisdictions and, and so many different tra- traffic patterns that it's hard to really find a, a regional or a, a statewide sort of public transit. Now, the good, the good news is, is when you increase the road funding budget, 
8% comes off the top, so you will core mass transit. So you will find more money for those opportunities. Well, as you take a look at, like, let's say the queue line or the people mover, I mean, that's kind of a, a sad excuse for, like, a subway system like you see in other big cities. But to Samantha's point, haven't we kind of missed the opportunity to dig up our, I guess, pathways in order to build a subway? That's not really feasible these days, is it? It's extremely expensive. And so I know that those have been discussions, you know, rail between the airport and downtown Detroit, Ann Arbor to to Metro. Um, Those are all in discussions, but they're very, very expensive. Especially now. I mean, they they were expensive then, you know what, 70 years ago, 80, 90 years ago, it's even more and more expensive now because you're digging up a, a road that people use a lot more than they did then. Yeah, and if you're putting resources towards that, are you really ignoring the problem or are you ignoring the problem then uh, of our poor condition of our roads and bridges? Uh, and, and I guess that's for policymakers to decide what's more important. When it comes to your battle plan for 2024, What's going to be new? Are there any new bills that you have your eyes on? Is there any new changes that you want to advocate for? Uh, what's going to be brand new for you? Yeah, so we are we, we definitely uh, believe that the council is correct, that we don't have an equitable user fee for all vehicles. Um, and so we would like to see a study or a pilot program in Michigan to study a vehicle miles traveled or a road usage charge for vehicles, uh, which, which is just basically you pay per mile that you go. And rather than a gas tax where uh, we have inefficiency or we have more efficiency vehicles, so uh, we're losing revenue on that end. Uh, electric vehicles are not paying their fair share of the amount that they travel on the roads. And so we really believe a user fee needs to be equitable. And so we're, we're going we're gonna to focus on uh, trying to convince the legislature that we need a pilot program in Michigan. There are 20 other states that are already doing this um, that with either a pilot program or there are two states that are actually fully implementing a road usage charge for their citizens. You, um, it is really the wave of the future. Do you have a bill sponsor for that? No, no. We're in discussions with okay. you know the different committee chairs and and the appropriations process just in case it would require some money. This is only in summer 2022, but I don't know why it feels like it was a decade ago when everyone had a bit of a gas tax cut fever, if that's an okay way to nickname it. There was a lot of legislation circulating about how to reduce the sales and use an excise tax on gas that obviously didn't make it over the finish line. Governor had opposition. A lot of Dems had opposition. Do you think we'll ever see that again? People wanting to find ways to advocate for ways to reduce fees and taxes on gas yeah i think you know our biggest funding problem for for at least the policy end of it is our sales tax on our motor fuel Um, we are one of five states that actually put sales tax on motor fuel and we're the only state that doesn't really put any of that into its transportation budget and so we have always advocated that the legislature can simply remove six percent sales tax on fuel now that creates about an 800 to a billion dollar hole and that money generally goes to education and locals and so as you can imagine that comes with some controversy and, and and with with politicians What is the state of the transportation infrastructure uh, industry right now in Michigan? Is it growing? Is it shrinking? Is it about the same? Where are we at? Yeah, so as as everyone driving around can see, we have a lot of orange barrels out there, and, and our companies uh, that we represent have invested significantly uh, in their uh, their equipment, uh, in their employees and training to make sure that Michigan contractors can handle all the work that's there. Mm-hmm. Um, as I mentioned earlier, that 
revenue really hits a cliff in 2027, 2028, uh, leaving those investments really irrelevant. And unfortunately, those aren't five-year investments. Those are 20-year investments. And um, you know, the contracting community can handle anything that's thrown at. We've always, we've always stepped up to the plate. Um, the 2008 um, Obama money that we had that was over a billion dollars one summer uh, of surge, which, which you know, a billion dollars nowadays keeps seeing like a lot lower than it was. But in 2006 and 2007, a billion dollars meant a lot more than it did now. And so the industry's always stepped up, but uh, we need that long-term sustainable solution for uh, those companies and those employees to ensure that they have a career. Um, our former board president used to say, I can hire for a job or I can hire for a career. I'd rather hire careers. You brought up kind of the Obama money, but now we are also seeing this era of the Federal Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. How do you think that has been going? Yeah, the, uh, it's it's infused a, a decent amount of money for five years. We're talking about, and, and this is, again, some more education for the public, but we're talking about $330 million every year for five years. Um, obviously short of 3.9 billion that we need every year. Um, so it's, it's, it's a good investment, um, out of the, out of the federal government. We have not seen a user fee increase out of the federal government since 1994. Um, and so we believe that there is room for, uh, the feds to come out with some more investments. Well, I know with Aisha, there is, and I know, uh, Pete Buttigieg, the U S secretary of transportation has brought this up, that there's kind of this aspiration that it's going to create infrastructure projects that last for the next several generations i wonder you don't seem as optimistic about that being the case no i i believe that that's true same with the governor's bonding program we are actually reconstructing these roads and they are built to last 30 to 50 years now they won't last 30 to 50 years if we don't properly maintain them we don't have the money to maintain them right now so these are transformational projects that they are putting in um but again we aren't we don't have that long-term sustainable solution uh, funding solution to ensure that we are properly maintaining them and they do last the, that long. So it's not about the creation, it's about the maintenance. Absolutely. Do you get the sense that legislators are as receptive to conversations about the roads as they were when fix the damn roads was the catchphrase? Yeah, I think everyone still knows and understands that we have a major problem. But it, as we all know, it hasn't been um, sort of on the top priority of, of legislative leaders. Uh, and so we're hopeful that, you know, we can convince them that this is something that can be tackled and will help out the citizens of Michigan. I also want to talk about the electric vehicles, too, because I know that there has been that concern about since you don't pay for gas from an EV, then you're not con contributing to transportation bucks. How serious of a concern is that? And, and I wonder, are there enough EVs on the road currently for that to be a concern? Well, so there is a declining revenue that we've already seen because of what the EVs that we have. And there's been a study out there that suggests we, we lose $50 million a year. Um, and that's only going to grow. And if you if you believe uh, in what policymakers say, and we're going to be fully electric by a certain year, that will have a significant um, problem for our, our road funding. What do you see right now with the fully electric in the near future? What could it be like? A, let's use the clean energy 100% by 2040. Let's see if we have majority EVs 
by 2045. Mm-hmm. Uh, and do you imagine that is a realistic possibility? What are you seeing in terms of our roadway driving culture and the EV transition? Yeah, I mean, it, that's really not my expertise, but uh, I certainly, you know, we don't have any electric vehicles in my family and we don't have any electric vehicles um, at the office. Um, so I, you know, I don't see a huge increase of, of electric vehicles. And I believe that, you know, Again, for, for our purposes, it, it is a significant decline in revenues. And so we've got to figure out how we collect a user fee that's equitable with EVs, with, with uh, your typical uh, ICE engines. So, uh, you know, again, I don't, I don't know. That's not my expertise, but uh, I don't see, you know, 50% electric vehicles out there currently. I don't know what the number is. I don't, is there anything additional that you want to add? Anything else that's on your mind that you want to get out there? No, I, you know, we've got our Fix My State coalition, and, and I think that uh, uh, it's not just the road building industry that's really concerned about our roads and bridges and our infrastructure. And, you know, you've got the business community, you've got uh, agriculture, tourism. Our, our roadways really are um, a basis for our entire economy. And so um, making sure that they have the lifespan that they deserve is really important, I think, across the state. What do labor numbers look like right now? Because I think the last time I reported on it, there are some signs of relief in terms of labor shortage. But what is your current take on what's going on? Sure. And, you know, it's again to the long term sustainable solutions. We can we can hire for careers or we can hire for jobs. But these are very good paying jobs. Um, some have some significant retirement benefits at the end of it and, and, and benefits in general. Um, and so uh, we've we've done pretty well in that arena. Uh, and again, you know, every increase that we've seen, Michigan contractors have stepped up. Um, there really isn't a labor shortage. I think there's a misconception too that if we just let's just for argument's sake, we we double the budget, the transportation budget. That does not need, mean that we need to double the labor force. You have different fixes, and, and a lot of that goes into materials. Um, well, that was going to bring me to my next question. Where are we with materials? Well, so there is a significant um, shortage uh, in aggregate. And it's just really basically sand and gravel. Um, and so we, we do um, support uh, legislation that allows for increase in mining of aggregate in the state. Right now, we're finding that there are some projects that have 100 to 120 miles of, of, of uh, roadway that people have to drive to, the aggregate has to go to, uh, rather than a pit being five miles down the road. And trucking costs right now are some of the biggest increases in inflation costs that we've seen in the road building industry. So the further you're trucking, the more expensive the, the project costs. You know, I, I've been recently doing some reporting on the aggregate need for wind turbines and solar farms. And I ultimately hear that there's kind of this sentiment of, while you would want to sell aggregate, a lot of aggregates already been committed to other infrastructure projects. Do you think because of the current legislature under Democratic leadership, their aspiration to see an influx in clean energy projects, do you think that's going to make the aggregate legislation move faster? I hope so. Um, it, you're absolutely correct. There is a lot of aggregate that has already been really committed for the 2024 season. And it, it, some of these projects are a significant amount of aggregate goes into them. Now, they will find the aggregate. It'll just be more expensive because it'll have to come from out of state, out of country. And those transportation costs are significant. Well, thank you so much. We are with Lance Benonimi. Thank you so much for joining us on our holiday episodes of the MERS Monday. Merry Christmas, everyone.
And that's going to do it for today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast. We pre-recorded a lot of today's segments on December 21st before some back-to-back breaking news alerts rolled in, like a ruling from a federal three-judge panel deeming 13 Metro Detroit legislative districts, including seven state House districts and six Senate districts, as unconstitutional due to racial gerrymandering. The next episode of the MERS Monday podcast will be released on New Year's Day, where we'll continue to ask what are some groups pushing for in 2024 and what headlines of 2023 have landed into a sort of timeline bottleneck, setting the stage for the stories we'll cover here at MERS in January. But for now, I hope everyone has the happiest and safest of holidays, and I look forward to talking to you all on January 1st. Thank you to Crane's politics and policy reporter, David Eckert, for joining us, as well as 13th House District candidate, Mai Sung, and Lance Benonimi of the Michigan Infrastructure and Transportation Association for joining us for this episode. As always, I'd like to give another huge thanks to MERS editor, Kyle Malin, the boss, John Ruhrank, and our house reporter, Danielle James. Post-production of the MERS Monday podcast is by Mark Bayshore, Audio and Okemos. Thanks to him for putting this and all of our audio together. Additionally, thank you to AT&T for sponsoring this and all of our other podcasts. Until next time, I am Samantha Schreiber and happy holidays. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be From now on, our troubles will be out of sight. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Make the Yuletide gay.
fates allow Hang a shining star Upon the highest bar And have yourself A merry little Christmas 